It's Thursday, August 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Texas is the latest state to be hit with a cyber attack. Officials have confirmed that 22 municipalities were infiltrated by hackers. A mayor of one of those cities said that the hackers were asking for $2.5 million in ransom to unlock files. Bobby Allen, reporter for NPR, joins us for what we know about these cyber attacks that are increasingly targeting state and local governments. Next, President Trump has decided to call off a state trip to Denmark after being told that Greenland is not for sale by the prime minister. The prime minister of Denmark called the idea absurd, and President Trump countered by saying that her statement was nasty. Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios, joins us to break down the latest. Finally, scientists are finding out more about how big earthquakes get started, oftentimes with many smaller foreshocks. Sometimes days or even weeks before most 4.0 and above earthquakes occur, scientists have found that smaller quakes are preceding it. Thanks to advanced computing techniques, we are learning more and it could help earthquake forecasting in the future. Daniel Trugman, seismologist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, joins us for what we know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Early Friday morning, we had got the news that the city of Wilmer's network infrastructure had uh, been attacked. We're a resilient city, but it has handicapped us a little bit. So we're, we're not functioning like we normally would. Joining us now is Bobby Allen, reporter for NPR. Thanks for joining us, Bobby. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about ransomware attacks. We've been hearing about these for uh, quite some time now. It tends to be, you know, an individual, a business, institutions like hospitals. Those were getting hit before. But it's becoming a growing problem for city, county, state governments And we're just learning that 22 towns in Texas were hit by a coordinated ransomware attack. And one of the cases, I don't know if it's overall money that was being demanded, but uh, these hackers were asking for $2.5 million to unlock the files so that these towns could get back to normal business. Tell us a little bit more about this. So about 22 Texas towns, like you mentioned, realized last week that none of their residents could pay utility bills. None of their residents could access death certificates. Every time they would go to the page, they would get kicked out and they sent complaints to city officials and city officials kind of scratched their head and said, what's going on here? And when they looked into it, there was a big surprise. And it was that some of these cyber criminals who are anonymous and nobody knows where they are, tapped into the networks and locked up the computer systems of two dozen Texas municipalities. And the people who did it are demanding $2.5 million. And these are tiny little specks of towns across Texas. Some are in the Texas Panhandle, some are in some other rural parts of Texas. You know, some of them have like 20 or 30 staff members total with tiny little budgets. So asking them to pay $2.5 million to them is laughable. And one mayor I talked to said, even if we had it, we're not going to pay it because as soon as we do, we're giving you an incentive to do it again. You mentioned that these towns are are really small, have small staffs. They don't have on-site IT people to monitor their their systems. So they're hacking some other central company or, or something like that? That's a really critical point here because one of the mayors I talked to said, you know, there's a pretty good chance these anonymous cyber attackers don't even know the cities 
that they have paralyzed. And that's because, as you just mentioned, the attack was targeted at this third-party IT company that provides IT services to small little towns and little counties across Texas. It's kind of ironic, right, that an IT company was vulnerable to a cyber attack, but they were. Somebody opened up a phishing email, opened an attachment, and that attachment launched a program, and that program basically encrypted hundreds of thousands of municipal files across the state of Texas, and now they're being held hostage. And the cyber attackers say, look, we're not going to give this back unless you cough up quite a bit of money. So so does this lead us to believe that the vulnerability, the person that clicked on this email or link or whatever it was, happened at that IT company rather than in one of these small towns? Yeah, it's almost certain the FBI has been looking at this, state investors have been looking at this, and sources I've talked to who are close to the investigation say it's, it's actually not these small town mayors, small town IT people in city halls and in government buildings who messed up. It is the IT company that was providing these services. And yeah, because these places are so small in really remote parts of Texas, they don't have enough staff to run IT services. So they say, hey, let's farm it out. Let's have this private company do it for us. But when they have a private company provide IT services, you know, they're basically entrusting that company with the keys to all of their government data. So these ransomware attacks have been going on for some time now. It seems that the options are pretty limited for these towns and and businesses, hospitals, even whoever's affected. The options are really limited on how to handle this. One, you either pay that ransom uh, two, you can restore your data from backup files if you have those. Or three, you kind of rebuild your system from scratch. This has happened before where towns have been attacked and they have paid. I think uh, one study found that 17% of local agencies pay up these ransoms. Uh, and it was a town in Florida that paid almost 500000 uh, in Bitcoin. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So this is a central question in this new front of cyber attacks involving local governments. And it's, do we pay or do we not pay? And like you mentioned, there was a couple towns in Florida that got hacked, their files were encrypted, and they did pony up the money. Um, But actually, there was an insurance policy that covered cyber attacks that covered basically all of it. Um, But, you know, the FBI, when you talk to them, they really encourage cities to stay away from paying these cyber criminals because it's, it's really fueling the market for more of these attacks, they say. And, you know, in recent months, you know, networks in Baltimore, there was a court system in Georgia that was attacked. Um, uh, there's, you know, a Utah attack. There was a, a public school system recently that was attacked. And all of these places are faced with this question. Do we pay the ransom or don't we? It's a minority of the time you're actually seeing cities pay up the money. But think about it. If you're a cyber, cyber criminal and 17% of the time you're getting money, and you can do these so easily because you're a computer whiz, you know, working from Estonia or wherever you're working from, it might still be worth it. You mentioned Estonia. That leads my into my next question. A lot of these attacks aren't even coming from inside of the United States. That's right. And I don't know to just to be clear, I don't know that the attack in Texas came from Estonia. But what we do know is when you look at the patterns of where some of these attackers are based, many of them are across Eastern Europe and in some parts of Russia. Almost certainly the FBI said this particular Texas attack is somewhere overseas. And there's a theory that it might be someplace in Eastern Europe. We don't know for sure. These folks are anonymous. They operate by using Bitcoin. They really are sort of shrouded in the dark recesses of the Internet. So nobody exactly knows, right? now, or at least everyone who knows is not willing to say publicly where they're based, but they're not in the U.S. They're they're someplace abroad. Bobby Allen, reporter from NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. 
I thought that the Prime Minister's statement that it was absurd, that was a, it was an absurd idea, was nasty. I thought it was an inappropriate statement. All she had to do is say, no, we wouldn't be interested. Joining us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Marisa. Thank you. The president was scheduled to visit Denmark on September 2nd and 3rd as part of a European tour, but that has been canceled now. This is after Denmark told him basically that Greenland is not for sale. It's kind of caused this weird back and forth. President Trump called the new prime minister of Denmark nasty, saying that, you know, I can't believe she said that this conversation was absurd. And it's just kind of turned into this big old thing now. Marisa, help us get our minds around this. What is going on? So this all began last week when the Wall Street Journal got wind of President Trump instructing his advisors to explore whether it was possible to purchase Greenland. And that idea started for strategic military purposes, as well as Greenland's natural resources base with the trip coming up in September. Now, this whole development um, that happened this week with the whole he said, she said storyline. It's an all too familiar news cycle in the Trump administration, right? Like X topic leaks from the White House. President Trump then confirms it when asked by the press. And then a firestorm of reactions follow. And this time it just happens to be from current and former Danish politicians who, for the majority of them, had tweeted out various reactions earlier on Tuesday and Wednesday and not too very not too kind things about the president. Um, one politician said that Trump, quote, lived on another planet and is disrespectful. Another politician said that his behavior reminded him of a spoiled child. So now we see President Trump on Wednesday kind of on defense. And so I think that was the idea he was trying to make to turn it on the prime minister to say he was insulted that she said that his idea was absurd. And right. he really, really hung on to that term quite a bit at the press pool he had on the South Lawn on Wednesday. It seems that this whole story is kind of absurd, even the way the Wall Street Journal had positioned it in their in their article was that he was maybe half serious. He was just kind of inquiring And now he's kind of let this become the discussion. I think it was a former finance minister for Denmark had said that this has gone from a great opportunity for strength and dialogue between two allies to a diplomatic crisis. And the way the president seems to be positioning it is she's not talking to me. She's talking to the United States. They can't say that about us, how absurd it is. I guess this has been kind of floated around twice before. President Harry Truman offered $100 million for Denmark back in '46. And I guess even before that, the State Department wanted to buy Greenland and Iceland in 1867. So this has kind of been a thought process. But a lot of people say, you know, the president really wanted this, yes, for the strategic military angle and the natural resources, but also to put that feather in his cap. He wanted this as part of his legacy. So the whole purpose of the trip was for two nations to talk about similar concerns like trade and developments within the Arctic. So this was kind of just an idea he was spitballing. For those who may not know, Greenland is self-ruled, so it formally remains part of the Kingdom of Denmark and relies on Denmark for capital. But it's 60,000 some people living there pretty much just like handles itself on its own. My understanding is that Denmark did invite the president initially 
and he was uh, set to meet the queen there also. And now everything kind of gets derailed <laughs> because of this. And, and beyond that, even the questions of, you know, I guess you're just toying with the idea, but when you're talking about realities, how expensive would this be? Greenland relies on Denmark for major, major subsidies. And I guess that's also what spurred the conversation is that Denmark was having financial problems because they pour so much money in there. So it seems like a very expensive property for the United States to buy also. But the president positions himself as a real estate guy. And this is how he views it as a deal. Right. And, you know, it didn't help even further on Sunday when, you know, White House economic advisor kind of chimed in on Fox News Sunday when he was talking about how the purchase was possibly, you know, a developing conversation. And he was joking around that Trump knows a thing or two about buying real estate. So it was the whole thing had just kind of snowballed right into this week of people becoming confused and angry and just like more confused regarding President Trump's comments and research into the idea. But at the same time, you know, I do think it's very interesting how one of the politicians that happened to tweet out this week had said something about how the United States and Denmark are two nations that are pretty friendly with each other. And we shouldn't really shy away from that. We should still kind of get back to that. You know, yes, it's hard to believe and it's kind of shocking. But at the same time, these are two nations that have been pretty friendly with each other. And, you know, let's try and keep it that way. Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. These larger earthquakes are, in fact, preceded by these very small foreshock events. They're very difficult to detect. You wouldn't be able to feel them if you're kind of sitting around and just trying to listen for them. But this is kind of an important finding in our field, at least. Joining us now is Daniel Trugman, seismologist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. We're getting some more information about earthquakes. We're finding out now how a lot of bigger earthquakes start. Uh, obviously, there's always a lot of concern because these things are so unpredictable, but we're finding out that maybe we can predict them a little bit more. A lot of bigger earthquakes that are you know, magnitude 4.0 or higher, a lot of times have a lot of foreshocks, uh, smaller ones, and, and some really interesting stuff, foreshocks that are magnitude zero or even in negative numbers. And we'll get that into that in a little, bit, in a little minute, but uh, tell us what we're learning. For the past 100 years or so, one of the uh, most important and one of the hardest questions in earthquake seismology is how earthquakes get started. And that's obviously a really important question, you know, not only for our understanding of, you know, the physics of how the earth works, but also for earthquake forecasting. And so if we really want to make progress on that problem, we really need a better sense of how earthquakes get started. Really what we're finding is that these larger earthquakes are, in fact, preceded by these very small foreshock events. They're very difficult to detect. You wouldn't be able to feel them if you're kind of sitting around and just trying to listen for them. But this is kind of an important finding in our field, at least. So previously, uh, scientists had observed that only half of all moderate earthquakes had a smaller foreshock. But in the study that you guys conducted, you found that at least 72% of these larger earthquakes had less powerful quakes 
uh, right before them. Yeah, and, and that 72% number is really kind of a lower bound. We were trying to be very conservative with our methodology to make sure that all of these sequences that we said had four shocks that really were characterized. But I think in reality, you know, in the limit that we had, you know, optimal detection coverage and we could accurately separate non-four shocks from four shocks, that 72% number would actually be much higher, we think. In some cases in the study, you guys were noticing that some of these four shock sequences were starting either three days to 35 days ahead of a main shock. That's quite a big range. So this, you know, this study is purely observational. We're able to, you know, with the with these new high-performance computing resources, we're able to detect very small earthquakes. And so if we crunch a lot of data, we can actually show that there are these four shocks. But that's quite different from being able to apply that information in real time to the earthquake forecasting problem. And so there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, one, this method that we're using doesn't work in real time at all. It takes, you know, a lot of computing power and a lot of retrospective analyses. But the other reason is the one you just mentioned, is that these foreshock sequences are variable in their characteristics. And so some of them are quite short and some of them are days or even weeks in length. And there's nothing that we could find in the data that was really diagnostic of, you know, which type of foreshock sequence was which. And so we're really not at the stage where we're able to apply this information yet. So what is the thought process? And if this stuff doesn't work in real time, how will this help future forecasting? So what we're hoping is that this study is kind of a first look um, on observations of a, of a new data set that's very high resolution. It's able to study very small earthquakes. And we're hoping that this study helps us improve our physical understanding of earthquake processes, so how earthquakes get started. And once we get a better handle of the physics of the problem, then we're hoping that that will improve earthquake forecasting down the line. You know, the first thing when a quake hits, everybody's very concerned with the number. That's the easiest thing to relate to. How big is it? But how are you guys finding quakes that are negative magnitudes? Most people think of magnitude as, you know, the way that seismologists characterize the size of something. And so if you think about a basketball, you can't have like a negative size basketball. And so having a negative magnitude earthquake seems like it doesn't make sense. But in fact, how seismologists actually measure earthquake size is with a parameter called seismic moment. So this is related to the, you know, the area of the fault that ruptures and the amount that that fault slips and so on. And so this seismic moment is a number that's always positive. So that's kind of like the size of a basketball, which is always positive. The earthquake magnitude is related to the seismic moment, but it's not quite the same. If you remember back to it's probably algebra two or whatever in high school, the magnitude is actually the logarithm of the moment. And so once you take the logarithm of a number, even if you take the logarithm of a positive number, it can be negative as long as that number is less than one. And so that's how you end up with negative magnitude earthquakes. It's kind of a mathematical quirk. Wow. I mean, it's very interesting. I've lived in Southern California my entire life. So this is the natural disaster. This is this is the thing that I know, you know, versus like a hurricane or tornado or something. So I've always been curious about this just because they're so unexpected. And, you know, a lot of people sometimes ask, you know, aren't you concerned about these? It's like, well, they're so unpredictable. <laughs> you know, it's it's tough yeah. to be really concerned with it all the time. But knowing how these start and, you know, knowing that foreshocks could, you know, be a precursor to something else. I mean, it's just really interesting. And you were the lead author on this study. So thank you very much for joining us. Daniel Trugman, seismologist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Thank you for having me.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.